1: Welcome back. Well, we spend a lot of time talking about our most vulnerable in nursing homes and the urgency of trying to protect them and of vaccinating them. But what about vulnerable elderly people in the community, especially those suffering with dementia? Uh, I'm sure a lot of you listening have stories about that as well. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Bonnie Powell who is a primary caregiver to her 87-year-old mother who has dementia and Dr. William Reichman, president and CEO of Baycrest. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello,
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me and shining a light on this issue.
3: Hi, Bill. Hi hi, hi there, Libby. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Okay, let's begin with Bonnie. Just uh, tell us uh, about your situation. Uh, you're living with your mother. Tell us about uh-huh. her. Um, so she's 87, and uh,
2: she does have the mental and physical health issues that put her, and in her age group, um, put her at great risk if she contracts COVID of dying from it, she's in the highest percentage group there. She lives with my family and, uh, I have two adult children, like they're just getting out of high school and going into university. Um, they have for 10 months now, basically completely locked down with us to protect my mom. Um, so, you know, some, my mom has a dog and lives with us and she walks her dog about four times a day, which is a great healing thing for her. Um, but sometimes she'll forget her mask and sometimes she'll see something and wander into a store. And, uh, if I'm not with her and that makes me very worried and, um, it's hard on the kids, you know, um, they're doing amazingly, but you know, mental health wise and uh, the fact they can't take jobs outside the home, um, and also we have a new grandchild who we are not bubbled with because they're at daycare. The mom is a midwife. So, you know, we're, we're not bubbling with our very first grandchild. It's just um, brutal. So yeah. all of these are things we're doing are to protect uh, our, the great-grandma from
1: uh, COVID. So
2: uh, we want to know when she'll get a vaccine. It's a big deal.
1: It it is it is a huge deal, and I I'm hearing from all kinds of people. Um, Bill Reichman, I'm I'm sure that you deal with a lot of people. Baycrest has day programs. Uh, what kind of priority should they be having in terms of a vaccine?
3: So I think this is a critical question, and we have to start from the from the assumption that every life is equally valuable. So everybody's entitled to be protected. But with that said, when we have limited supply of vaccine, where a demand outstrips supply, then we do have to have some kind of prioritized approach to this. And that largely is based on doing a risk assessment uh, in terms of who's most at risk for getting exposed to the virus, and who's most at risk if they do get exposed to the virus of becoming sick from it, uh, and perhaps even um, uh, passing away from it. Uh, and to date, the reason why there's so much emphasis on long-term care is because of the risk assessment, that older people living in close proximity to each other and who are cared for by multiple staff in these congregate settings have increased risk uh, for, for getting exposed to the virus. Also, many of the health care workers work in multiple sites, at least up until recently. Uh, many of these older adults in congregate care settings uh, take meals together, et cetera, so they're at increased risk. And because they're older adults, and because they have comorbid medical conditions, that then puts them at increased risk, not only for getting the virus, but for getting sick uh, from the virus. So I think the societal approach to date is based on what we call a stratified or hierarchical risk assessment, both for being exposed to the virus, and then if being exposed, uh, getting sick from it.
1: But what about people like Bonnie's mom? I mean,
3: aren't they at risk as well? They are, but they are definitely at risk. Uh, but the issue is, on a comparative basis, if you have limited supply of vaccine, where do you distribute the vaccine first? Uh, and I think that the decision's been made across several jurisdictions that living in a congregate care facility where you're exposed to other older people, you're exposed as well to perhaps multiple visitors in the facility, and critically exposed to staff, that are coming from the community and are in place every day um, working closely with you as an individual older adult, that's one of the highest, if not the highest risk category for exposure. And the people who live in nursing homes, by nature of living in a nursing home, these are typically very frail people physically and cognitively. So that's why they're at the top of the list. That doesn't mean that um, other frail people living in the community aren't at risk. They are. But the difference is being in a congregate care setting.
1: Okay, but uh, uh, Bonnie, how frail is your mother? Well, she is quite frail. Um, like I said, walking
2: her dog, but it's, you know, basically just getting her out the door. Uh, but um, I think that seniors at home, um, you know, we were we did have caregivers. We had part-time caregivers, but as soon as they started saying that, you know, that 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 caregivers going from place to place are possibly um, a way that seniors can from can get COVID, um, we, we canceled the caregivers. So, um, and we basically locked down. So, but these seniors who are in, um, have a care at home, they're not specifically listed in this ethical framework that I've been in touch with the three members of the um, vaccine distribution task force. And um, basically, I, I, totally agree. I wouldn't argue with Dr. Reichman that, you know, we need to prioritize those people he's describing. Absolutely. 100%. But we want to see, the you know, where in the queue these people in home care would be because they, they're not prioritized for vaccines or in-home co- in testing. And I've heard of a few cases where seniors at home have been infected by private caregivers and become ill and a few have passed away, but not much is said about these folks.
1: Well, um, Dr. Reichman, uh, I think Bonnie makes some very good points there. And the one thing that I'm hearing from all people and from primary caregivers is a complete lack of communication with people who are in the community uh people who at least want to know when their turn will come up uh, there's also frankly seems to be a lot of double speak about how much vaccine there is when is it coming first there's shortages now uh, the prime minister gets up and says that we have uh you know millions of doses coming when are they coming i mean it it seems like uh, one of the big problems is communication here
3: yeah. I I, I, I I think that communication is a, is a problem, Libby. I think that the government has an opportunity to much more clearly and explicitly state what the plans are for more population-wide vaccination, how that's going to occur, where it's going to occur, and when. Uh, and the lack of information understandably then makes people more anxious than they otherwise need to be. Um, I would also suggest that another issue that we have to confront Uh, is we need the vaccine now. So we need the supplies distributed. We need to understand how the shot in the arm is going to be accomplished and where. And all of this uh, hopefully has been planned for and needs to be communicated. Uh, And lastly, I do think we have to combat some um, vaccine hesitancy. So just having the vaccine available doesn't mean that everybody who should be getting vaccinated is willing to to do so. Uh, And so a public health campaign on the benefits of vaccination is also something that I think is in too short supply right now. We we should be inundated with messaging about why it's so important for Bonnie, her mother, for everybody uh, to be vaccinated so that we can finally come to the end of this very dark chapter uh, in our nation's history.
1: Well, the public health people that we're in touch with and doctors, everybody is... is talking at least about the vaccine hesitancy piece. But in the, in the meantime, the bigger problem is that people who are desperate to get the vaccine uh, not only can't get it, but have no idea when. Uh, and, you know, the question is, uh there was initially a lot of criticism that uh, our government was late to the party ordering the vaccines. And maybe they do have options for all those doses they're talking about. But where are they?
2: And Doug Ford's group, this task force, was only formed a very short time ago. They could have all this information now. Who needs it? Who wants it? Who, you know, why now are, is it going so slowly?
1: Well, it, and, it, it, sorry to, to interrupt there. Um, I know I have a relative who is over 80, and she has friends in the United Kingdom. And they were all personally called and told uh, you have an appointment, here's where it is, you know, get there. I, I, do, I, I don't know how all these people in the community are, are going to be reached. Bill, do you well, have any inkling? Yeah.
3: Bill? Um, so I, I don't know how the Ontario government plans to uh, do this because it hasn't yet been stated clearly uh, to the community. Of course, um, uh, the government um, is as inclined and motivated as we all are Uh, to ensure the protection of its citizens. I have no doubt about that. I spend plenty of time um, advising and working collaboratively with people in government, as well as across the healthcare sector. And we all are aligned in a singular purpose. Um, I do think, though, the time is now to explain clearly to our communities when they're going to get vaccinated, how that's going to occur, uh, and when we will finally see the case numbers in Ontario start to decline as a consequence. And so, as I said before, um there is an opportunity for the government to more clearly um, communicate all of this, that's for sure. Uh, and there'll be plenty of time once the pandemic has wound down for us to do a post-mortem on all of this. Uh, we will look back on how the government, how the healthcare sector, how all of us as a society um, responded to the pandemic, and hopefully we will learn from it. Uh, and should we have to do this again, which the public health experts and infectious disease experts tell us we will sometime in the future, we will do it that much more effectively
2: well, hopefully. in the meantime, they could loop in doctors we've asked all the doctors that we 're in contact with they know nothing about the rollout i mean other than what's on the government webpage, they could loop in the social workers who are working with the elderly, they could loop in the local integrated health networks like, there's so many um avenues that they could be sending messages through. And as you say, in England, they seem to be, have done a better job of communicating
1: directly with the public. I would love to get a phone call from public health. Well, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Bill, um What do you have to say to Bonnie? I'm sure that you know of a lot of people in the same situation. It's hard enough with help to take care of a loved one who suffers with dementia, but suddenly if you're afraid to have other caregivers come in, and and what's happening with with Baycrest? What do you say about supporting these people through this?
3: Well, you know, I would say that, Bonnie, your experience is being replicated across North America, Western Europe, and even more for far-flung parts of the world. Um, the, the devastation that this pandemic has had on older people, and particularly those with both cognitive, meaning dementia, and physical frailty, um, has really been overwhelming in so many different jurisdictions. Uh, and you know, expressions of sympathy don't go far enough. Exactly. Uh, I think what we've, what, 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 we've, what we've tried to do um, at Baycrest uh, is to combat some of the isolation that people living in the community with dementia and their caregivers are facing by bringing services to them. Um, a lot of these services are being delivered virtually. Uh, so we have programs uh, where uh, caregivers can get support online, where there are activities online that they can sign up for, that, um, that their uh, family member with dementia can participate in. Uh, we're calling this virtual uh, daycare, virtual dementia <laughs> programming, uh, so that you don't have to actually go to a, a, a dementia daycare program. You don't actually have to go to a caregiver support group. We're going to bring all of that into your home. Uh, and you can learn more about that by going to the, uh, the Baycrest website, uh, and this program is called Baycrest at Home. And, and you're going you to see more of that, actually, in the future, to, uh, more virtual virtual support.
2: Sorry, you need Bonnie? to be in a certain catchment to
1: access that help from Baycrest.
2: Bayfrest? No, Bay
3: Rest? no okay. you can be anywhere.
1: Awesome. Um, Thank you. Bonnie, how much of an extra burden on you is this?
2: Uh, actually, my, my mom is a gem, and um, it, I feel that it's more a burden on the young, young people in our household that they can't you know, get together with their friends, and, and you know, we are really locked down. We do have a fire pit in the backyard, and uh, we've had some family gatherings that are distanced. Um, so she's getting the social, uh, you know, some of the social things. I don't find it really a lot of a burden on me. Although I, I did appreciate having, when we went to Baycrest, actually we had a wonderful doctor at Baycrest. I uh, wish I could remember her name. But she said that people um, with dementia need to uh, access um, social events outside of the people they see every day. That is very good for their brains. Um, But, you know, with the lockdown, it's very hard to do. So, um, you know, that uh, having those extra caregivers come in actually was a social thing for my mom. because She's super sociable. So we really need those people back again. But I don't know when they are actually going to get tested, uh, get the vaccine. Um, So I don't know when I can invite them back into our household.
1: And um, Dr. Reichman... How do generally people with dementia, can they, uh, how do they deal with computers or doing things
3: virtually? Does that, how does that work? Well, you know, you know, the, the actually, you know, setting, setting it up, um, you know, getting online um, people with dementia, depending on their severity, largely need help with that. So there needs to be somebody um, in the home who can help get it set up. Oh, for sure. Log, log on to the websites, et cetera. Um, and, and again, it depends on the individual and their stage of impairment, but we 're finding that that many people with dementia um, are able to sit in front of a large screen television like a smart TV um, or even a large computer monitor, uh, and they can participate uh, in the, both individual programming as well as uh, group programs where there are other seniors uh, and other caregivers that are participating um, but it's it 's highly individual; some people really interact quite well with. With this kind of virtual programming and others not so much. But for most patients, we believe that it is absolutely worth a try, particularly during uh, exigent circumstances like this, where we have so few options for people's uh, engagement.
2: I know the Alzheimer's Society also, they did, we did a virtual art class. um, So that was great. And, uh, you know, I I do think the online thing can work. But the thing is, I, you know, we don't have a language barrier. You know, there are seniors out there who do not speak English and don't have computers. Um, So, you know, I just hope that they're going to be able to um, get help from public health, you know, without reaching out in the way that I can reach out being computer savvy and and having degrees and speaking English.
1: Well, yeah, and you have uh, young people in your house, so presumably (laughs) they know how to deal with the computers. Absolutely. Um, We are... uh starting to run out of time. Um, Bill, what would you like to say to people on this whole issue, people who are, first of all, extremely anxious about figuring out when they're going to get this vaccine? Uh, What do you
3: say to them? Well, I think, again, you know, I I think that uh, through vehicles like this, we need to be impressed upon, we need to impress upon our public health officials how critical it is to tell us what the plan is, Uh, and when we can expect to get access to the vaccine. So continue to do what we're doing, raise public awareness, urge our public officials uh, to tell us what's happening. Uh, The media continue to pay tremendous attention to this uh, and hold all of our feet to the fire. Those on the, the provider side, like me and the staff at Baycrest, as well as those on the policy side working in government, continue to hold our feet to the fire, hold us accountable. But I also think that while we're waiting for the vaccine, Anything we can do to get people enthusiastic about getting vaccinated, we need to do because I hear what Bonnie's saying. You know, she's eager. She wants to get vaccinated and get her mom vaccinated. Um, I have less concern about Bonnie and her mom. I'm concerned about um, large numbers of healthcare workers that have a uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, and perhaps mm-hmm. have um, embraced some myths about the safety um, of, of vaccines. Uh, that could really get in the way of us reaching the kind of population immunity we need to put this pandemic behind us.
1: I've heard anecdotally about some healthcare workers. You're speaking about large numbers.
3: Yeah, I think I think that it's 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 more widespread than you might think. Uh, and in fact, we have experience of this with influenza vaccination. So um, there are much larger numbers of healthcare workers working in long term care and hospitals who choose not to get vaccinated than what you would imagine. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with misinformation about um, the efficacy and the safety uh, of uh, influenza vaccination. And I think we're seeing the same thing uh, in some pockets with COVID vaccination, particularly since the COVID vaccine is so novel. Uh, it was approved um, seemingly very quickly compared to um, typical vaccines, and so that has uh, fueled uh, some of the anti-vax sentiment that's been a part of society now um, and has been growing uh, for several years uh, across the globe. So I am concerned that that there's more hesitancy um, out at the front lines of healthcare. Uh, for those workers to get vaccinated than we might have anticipated. And we need to um, really do something about that ASAP. Okay. That's
2: really shocking. I'm so shocked to hear that because it was big health, people in healthcare would be relying on the scientific information. But I think that tangle with the political uh, sphere where, where politics seems to be influencing so many decisions rather than science. Um, but it's just very surprising to me to hear that there are healthcare workers that are vaccine
1: hesitant. Uh, Bonnie, we have to go uh, 10 seconds. Do you feel better about have, after having this conversation or Are you still? Absolutely. absolutely? And I hope other people out there will,
2: will, will reach out. I just wanted to say thank you to Dirk Herrier and Isaac Bogotch and Maxwell Smith who were on the task force. And they actually personally responded to me um, about my questions about my mother. I really appreciate that.
1: Okay. That's uh. Excellent to hear. Thank you so much. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. Also, Dr. William Reichman, thank you so much for being with us and for all that good information.
3: Okay, my pleasure.
1: Okay. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.